the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Good morning, Steve. I want to talk to you about a number of things. First of all, you were the fellow who put in my head Bush Dukakis. So I went back and read about the race, and you were right. 17-point lead for Mike Dukakis on July 22, 1988. Before we try and draw any lessons for today, what happened to Dukakis? What, in your mind, what happened in 88? I, you know, I think the simplest way of saying it is he got defined. You know, he got defined by the Bush campaign. Um, he had some vulnerabilities. Um, they hit him really hard on the vulnerabilities. You know, look, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of Democrats who would say they hit him unfairly. Um, but Dukakis would also be the first to tell you, you know, he'll say to this day he didn't fight back. Um, you know, he got hit. He doesn't think he responded, you know, hard enough. He didn't. He doesn't think he responded aggressively enough. Um, yeah, he thinks he was his sort of uh, approach to it was kind of, you know, too above it. Um, but yeah, no, it was. There were a bunch of issues. There were a bunch of vulnerabilities. You know, prison furloughs in Massachusetts. Um, you know, the pledge of allegiance in Massachusetts. Maybe some of these. Maybe some folks remember these. But um, yeah, from a 17-point lead for Dukakis mid-July '88. You know, by September. You know, Bush was well ahead in that race. The final margin was eight points for Bush. You know, there were there was polling in September and October that had it even higher than that. I mean, that that is sort of the ultimate modern example of an election where the pendulum just was so far over here and then ended up so far you know over on the other side. Now, it was possible in those days to buy three networks and drive a message. It's not possible now. And so I brought up to you last night, and I want to explore with you two things. You brought up the shy Tory based on John Major's surprise vote, where a lot of people didn't want to admit they were going to vote for Major, and he won in England. I brought up the 2019 Brexit referendum, and for anyone who wants to know about that, go watch the movie starring Benedict uh, Cumberbatch as um, uh, the, the wonderful Dominic Cummings character. They went out and found three million new voters, people who weren't shy, they just had never been there before. Which is more likely, if either of those, Steve, to be at work in the 2020 electorate, if at all? It's a good question because we this is more than any other presidential election you know, in my lifetime, certainly. We don't know what the electorate is this year. Um, one thing that I've been noticing, you know, a lot of these primaries, you know, in the last few weeks where you've had a lot of them, not all of them, but the, the places where you've had extensive mail-in voting, we've seen very high turnout. You know, we've seen numbers. I was looking at Kentucky, for instance, the other day. You know, they had a Democratic Senate primary there, uh, you know, to go up against McConnell. Numbers in Kentucky, you know, ballots returning, not just Democratic, I mean, Republican as well. Um, you know, they were looking at turnout there that rivaled their highest of all time. And, and you know, the races this year arguably weren't, uh, weren't even as interesting in Kentucky as, as they've had, you know, in some past campaigns. So I think there is a possibility that the number gets way up there this year. Um, you know, it was about 130 million, you know, was turned out in 2016. I mean, if this thing hit 140, if this thing got up into the 140s near 150, um, I, I don't think I'd be surprised. And I don't have a handle on who those 
extra voters, if you will, um, are going to be, because I think the mail-in dynamic changes it. Um, it. It just seems, looking at primaries in these states, that given that opportunity, more people are taking advantage of it. Maybe it has something to do with the pandemic and, and being at home and having nothing else to do. I, I don't know. But it seems that more people are taking advantage of it, and it raises the possibility to me of a dramatic increase uh, in turnout for this thing. Now, Steve, on the landing page of the Post today, I have a, a, a editorial on the dangers of confirmation bias. Uh, the Trump supporters want to believe that the new voters you talk about, the difference between the 130 million who voted last year, and I think you just said the maximum of 150 million who might vote this year, are Trump people who never voted for four, the Brexit voter. They're coming out of the woodwork. They're not saying anything. They're shy. They're afraid. They don't want the static. They don't want to be called a racist. But the left believes it's the African-American vote that is energized. It's the Latino vote that's energized. Is there any evidence of either of the confirmation bias responses that one or the other has more prob- uh, probability than the other? Yeah, I think where it gets a little complicated on that to me is if, if it's the Trump factor you're describing, I don't think we're going to see it yet um, because, you know, Trump's had an uncontested you know, run to the Republican nomination and these have been, um, you know, he's been sort of just playing out the circuit here kind of um, Whereas you've had these Democratic primaries, you know, Biden, Sanders, you've had you know, big Democratic Senate races. So I think we've kind of been testing more the Democratic side of it than the Republican side of it. Um, I really think it's going to take a competitive Democrat versus Republican, Trump versus a Democrat election, you know, to test what you're talking about. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, you say African-Americans, for instance, Democrats talk about they also talk about they think young people, younger people. Um, this, you know, this is another sort of elusive demographic for them where they, they get a lot of support from younger voters, but the turnout isn't always there. They think this is a tool that can also, you know, can also increase that. I think there is some evidence here. Democrats are getting more voters out from these primaries. But as I say, these are Democratic primaries. So it's, it's hard to measure it against what you're describing, you know, potentially there for Trump. One of the smartest people I know, retired general officer, Marine Corps, uh, wrote to me uh, recently about the surge in gun purchases. And what he believes to be a growing fear in America about personal security, defund the police, the, the mobs, the, the rioting, but even the demonstrations wig out a bunch of people, combined with the fear that the police are simply pulling back and the increase in violence we've seen in New York City, Chicago, et cetera. What does that result in on, a, on an individual voter level, Steve? How does someone go from being a voter concerned about whether or not their job and their retirement fund is going to someone who's concerned about their personal safety. Have we seen that before? We've seen it before. Um, we haven't seen it in a long time. And yeah, it's curious. I'm curious to see what the you know, evolution of this is. If you go back about a generation in American politics, I, I, I talk to um, you know, younger people who are you know, maybe 10, 15 years younger than me. They don't remember this at all. But 1990, 92, 94, that period, um, if you took a national poll, uh, in fact, I dug one up the other day from February 1994. If you took a national poll and said, what's the top issue in this country? They said violent crime. That was the number one issue back then. This is the era when New York City was logging, you know, 2,000 murders a year, you know, as opposed to 300-something in more recent times. Um, so we've really seen through the 90s and, and, and beyond, we really saw that issue of violent crime, of people feeling threatened um, by it. We really saw that recede, and we've seen a whole new sort of politics develop around crime. What you're pointing to is the possibility that, that there are some changes in the um, in the reality of crime, the statistics of crime, that, that instead of a, a generation of a, of a decrease in sort of stability, that it starts going up again. 
Um, we're not seeing in the polling yet anything like we saw in the 1990s. But, um, you know, I've seen the same statistics, at least, you know, month over month. You know, um, if that were to continue, if that were to grow, um, I would be very curious how that would what would scramble our politics, because we certainly saw, you know, in the early 1990s, everybody talks now in politics, you know, whether it's Rand Paul on the right, whether it's folks on the left, you know, they talk about, you know, prison reform and, you know, mass incarceration, these sorts of things. All of that that they're talking about, so much of it is the legacy of the policy decisions that were made by Democrats and Republicans in response to crime being the number one issue a generation ago. Um, and things like three strikes and you're out were passed back then. Now you have folks sort of grappling with the legacy of that. They're doing it in a very sort of low crime political moment. Um, it's a very interesting question if, if, if unfortunately we were to have a consistent, steady and dramatic increase in crime. I don't know that we will, but if we were, um, you think what the politics were like back then, you think how that affected uh, voting and how that affected legislative decision making. It, it could be a different world, but, but we're not there yet. I'm certainly not seeing in the polling. Now, I do know uh, the uh, estimable Nate Cohn tweeted out a few moments ago. At this point, there's quite a bit of evidence that Biden's margin in Arizona hasn't really grown the same way it has nationwide or in other battlegrounds. You could even make a case it's tightened since spring. He goes on to talk about a few reasons why. I personally believe, and I know Arizona pretty well, it's a gun state. It's a it's a personal security state. It's a live free or die New Hampshire state. Um, and I do believe this effect is in the water, but it's going to be so hard. Steve, as a, as a pollster, how do you even get to what people never want to say they're afraid? That's why you know, I have done polling work <laughs> since 1978 with Gary Oren in Boston during the busing stuff. But I, I know that they were always difficult to get people to say they're afraid because it's sort of an admission of personal vulnerability. Is that a constant over the years of polling? Yeah. I mean, again, like I, I, I there was even a disconnect. That's interesting you say that because I'm, I'm looking back at these numbers, um, you know, when violent crime was the top issue. And actually, there even was then a disconnect where folks believed violent crime was the number one issue in the country. They believed it needed to be addressed. And then you ask them if they were afraid personally, you know, of being a victim of crime. Um, and the numbers were much lower. Um, so that that's interesting about a generation ago. Um, you know, I, I, I remember talking to you yesterday on the air brought up that that finding in the uh, Monmouth, Pennsylvania poll. Um, yep. There is a wide belief out there, Democrats and Republicans in Pennsylvania, that there is a shy Trump voter for whatever reason, whether it's related to Trump himself or any of these other issues. Um, it, it, it's those are the tricky ones because you can't really test them until Election Day. No one's going to rest easy this year. Uh, that my, my theory, number one, is uh, Trump could be ahead 10 or behind 10, and the other Biden won't rest, and Trump won't rest because nobody really knows, and it could go either way dramatically. What about the – just curious your hunch, Steve. If Moderna's trial is proved efficacious in July, their 45 out of 45 number is huge. I even bought stock in it yesterday because I've never seen a trial hit that way in a phase two. There are phase three trials out there. They've got a vaccine. That news comes in August, but it can't roll out and can't be effective uh, on a widespread basis until late in the fall. Does that impact? I mean, it could. And I think it, I think my read of these numbers is something on that level, something that would impact voters basic attitude about where coronavirus is, where it's going, that would make them optimistic, immediately optimistic. I think. Something like that is needed for Trump. And I, I just I, when I look at our NBC poll yesterday, um, three issues, you know, economy, coronavirus, race relations. And the Trump campaign plan all along you know, going into 2020 was economy, 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 
coronavirus, race relations, this whole reckoning that's been going on post-George Floyd, none of these things were on the radar for anybody. Um, now they've completely sort of consumed our, our national conversation. And on those issues, Trump's numbers are poisonous. They are, you know, he's 25, 30 points underwater. But on the economy, in our poll, he has a 54 percent approval rating. So I just think, you know, I don't know exactly what the ingredients would be, but I think it, it, it would take something to get voters off coronavirus or feeling more optimistic about coronavirus and refocus them on the economy, because that's where Trump has consistently had an advantage. And even throughout you know, the last couple of months, which have been very difficult for him, he still has that advantage on the economy. He, but I, I don't know how he gets it back there, but I think it, it would take something. He needs something big to get it there to have a shot at this. Steve Kornacki, always great fun to talk to you. Whether I'm asking the questions or you are, thanks for hosting me last night. Thanks for joining me as a guest today. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. The horrifying video showing the last anguished moments of George Floyd featured a detail only now drawing outraged attention. The cop car parked near the incident was a police interceptor manufactured by Ford. In a petition signed by more than 100 employees, the automotive giant faces demands that they stop making such vehicles. The petition charges, Throughout our history, the vehicles that Ford employees design and build have been used as accessories to police brutality and oppression. This offensive statement suggests that all police forces brutalize and oppress rather than protect and serve. The petitioners smear police as an invading army condemning their own company for trading with the enemy. The poisonous notion that police are the implacable foe of all people of color, worthy of scorn and resistance, and unworthy of decent equipment, could cost innocent lives among officers of the law, as well as civilians. I'm Michael Medved. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.